Let's turn to God's Word together then. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 16, following through uh, the story of Exodus. God has redeemed His people, brought them through the Red Sea. Last time we saw the people grumble against God for lack of water, and He led them um, to water, first at Marah and then at Elim. We're going to take a look at chapter 16 over two uh, Sundays. So, let's read together the first half of the chapter now. Exodus 16 from verse 1. Let's read and hear together God's Word. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses says, Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the fool, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? But they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Amen.
We're going to read together once more from John's Gospel, from John chapter 6. If you're using the, one of the church Bibles, it's page 891, John 6 from verse 25. We just had the feeding of the 5,000, um, after which Jesus withdraws because the people, uh, the, mer- the greatness of the miracle is such that the people were about to make him king by force, and uh, he knows that that is uh, it's not his time uh, for that. And so the people go looking for him, and we pick up the story at John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. 
not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Amen. Father, help us, we pray, as we turn to Your Word. We pray that You would give us understanding of its meaning. But, Father, we ask for more than this. We ask that we would hear this Word spoken to us by the very voice of God, that You would address us through the pages of Scripture, bring this Word to life, and and bring it to our lives, apply it to our hearts, and change and renew as we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture the scene. You've been sweating over a hot stove for hours. You've taken great care to prepare a delicious meal with imagination and skill. It's a new recipe. You've never tried this one before. Um, The ingredients are fresh and good. You serve it up. The family sits at the table, and the kids take one look at it and say, what's that? What are you trying to make me eat? This isn't what we normally eat. What's wrong with mince and tatties? The smell of suspicion suddenly hangs in the air. Well, not, not always the kids that say that kind of thing, is it? Hopefully, um, if, you're, if you're hosting someone as part of our guest lunch Sunday this afternoon, hopefully you'll not have that experience. But you, you do get the impression. Am I wrong in, in thinking there's something of that tone in Exodus 16:15? God does this uh, astonishing thing. This is an incredible miracle demonstrating His power and His love by covering the ground in sweet-tasting food, and the people say... What's that? It's the voice of suspicion. And that, of course, is how, it's got, how it got its name, because the, the Hebrew expression, what is it, sounds like manna. We're a month out of Egypt. It was the 15th of the month when the Exodus took place. It's the 15th of the following month that the Israelites came to this wilderness region and began to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Uh, They had probably lingered at Elam for a few weeks at the end of chapter 15. No doubt they would have loaded up and taken all the water they could carry. But now they're heading out into the wilderness. It's called the wilderness of sin. uh, And in case you're wondering, no, Um, it doesn't mean that. It's got nothing to do with doing wrong. It's just the name of the place. It's related to to the name Sinai. Um, So they're probably heading in that direction. Uh, I said a few weeks ago that the crossing of the Red Sea represents a turning point in the book of Exodus and a turning point in the life of God's people. No longer are they downtrodden slaves of Pharaoh, they are devoted servants of the Lord, or that's what they're to become, because that's the reason they were redeemed. Pharaoh, let my people go because you're breaching their human rights. That's not what God said, is it? Let my people go that they may serve me. They're my people, and they exist to worship me. And so so now we're beginning one of the greatest training programs in the history of the world. One nation has been set apart from all other nations, and it must now do two things. It must leave behind the ways of thinking and living that it's always known, and it must learn what it means to serve the Lord and be His people. It starts well um, in, in chapter 15, great song of praise. And then we saw a wobble last week with the people grumbling about their lack of water, and sadly, it's not long before the wobble starts to look like a pattern. 
verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. But you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Once again, we saw this before, once again, the, the power of rose-tinted spectacles is just amazing, isn't it? Remember how wonderful it was in slavery? Remember how we had an all-you-can-eat carver every night? Remember how every day was like Christmas Day, you're sitting there, your belly's full, you're watching Egypt's Got Talent or, or whatever. There was nothing of the sort. But that's how they start to remember it. And it's not just a few pessimist types either. It's not just the guys that thought the springs of Elam were half empty. This is, it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel. This is full-on mutiny. The Israelites are revolting, so to speak. And in some ways, the most amazing thing about the whole chapter, the big picture of it, is how God responds to such a revolting people. Because here we see grumbling met by grace. On the one hand, we have the rebellion of the people. On the other hand, we have the gracious provision of God. I, I, I'm not sure, um, as we were thinking last week, I'm not sure that it's wise to assume that we would have done much better than the Israelites did here. These are people who can feel the hunger in their bellies, and they're struggling to feed their kids, and their animals are fainting, and there's no end in sight. Nonetheless, that does not take away from the sinfulness of their response, does it? It's possible to express sorrow and confusion and lament, even complaint in a godly way. We see that often in the Psalms, but I don't think that's what we're seeing here. The psalmist cries out to God, even in his complaint, because he still trusts God. I don't understand what's going on, but you're the God I trust, and so, so help me. What we're seeing here is just straightforward unbelief, an unbelief that arises at the first challenge that, that comes their way. These, these, these are not people crying out in confusion to the God they love. They're shouting in anger at the leaders God has placed over them. We may as well have died at the hand of the Lord in Egypt, presumably in the plagues. They've seen plenty of death in Egypt and may as well have just taken us, they say. Incredible thing. They're saying in, in the grand scheme of what's happened so far in Exodus, it would have been better for them to die as slaves of Pharaoh than to be freed to serve the Lord. I mean, that's just blasphemy of the highest order. So what does Moses do? Well, the first thing he does is to point out to the people at some length that it's not him and Aaron they've got a problem with. Don't kid yourselves. He says at verses 6 to 8, what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 7, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord, verse 8. Your problem is not that you've got incompetent leaders. Your problem is that you don't like the way that God has led you. This is a people that had seen God's deliverance from slavery, and then at the Red Sea, and then at Marah, and then at Elam. It was a month since they had walked through the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground. It was a month since they were singing and dancing. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him. One month. Imagine that. Imagine singing God's praise on Sunday morning and then forgetting all about Him on Monday morning. Getting on with our lives as if He didn't exist or wasn't in charge. We would never do that, would we? We've seen 
so much more than the Israelites. We've seen Calvary. We've seen an empty tomb. How long is it since God showed mercy to you? Answer, he's doing it right now. And yet, how easily and how quickly we forget. We need to be trained. We need to learn what it is to be God's people. And if we're prone to grumble, I suspect that many of us are, if we're prone to grumble, we need to consider why. What causes grumbling? This is the, the psychology of this, the spiritual psychology of this is very straightforward. What causes grumbling is a sense of entitlement. That's what. I'm not getting my due. The Israelites were entitled to have pots overflowing with meat and to have all the bread they could eat. Our culture reinforces in us every day an outrageous sense of entitlement in life. And it just leads to a discontent and a grumbling which should not be heard among the people of God. What's the antidote to grumbling? Gratitude. You can't be grateful and grumbling at the same time. This doesn't work. Remember what God has done for us and, and given to us and been to us. Be thankful for it all. And, and it's a fight that we need to fight every day. We need to just kind of kill that sense of entitlement, just stamp it down. Every advert that comes on the TV, no. Shout out your TV. I do not deserve it. It's not true. I deserve nothing. Not worth it. Stir up thankfulness in your heart. Count your blessings. Go back to that. Sing that. When the adverts are every ad break, just start singing. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Ad breaks are rubbish anyway, aren't they? they just, you're better to drown them out. Just mute. Count your blessings. Go for it. Hear the people grumble. Yeah, the, the, the word kind of comes, I don't count how many times, but it's there all the way through, grumble, grumble, grumble. It's there all the way through the passage. Four times we read that the Lord heard their grumbling, and we might well tremble at how He would respond to such sinful unbelief. I wonder if they thought, you know, Moses says to them, the Lord has heard your grumbling, now gather before the Lord. What are they thinking at that point? It's going to happen now. But look what God, God says to Moses in verse 4. People are grumbling, grumbling. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And when the people are gathered before the Lord at verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. It's just nothing but grace. Later on, God will become angry with His people for their persistent sin, but here He's, he's like a He's like a patient father with a rebellious toddler who just doesn't have a clue what's best for him. And he's merciful and he's gentle and he's generous with his infant people. Now, grumbling is met by grace, and so we have these, these amazing events from verse 13 onwards in which God answers a prayer that his people haven't even asked. Give us this day. Give us this day. He makes daily provision for His people. And, and there's something just delightful about the fact that even with their grumbling ringing in His ears, God doesn't even make them wait until morning to eat. He says, I'm going to give you meat tonight, this very night. And so He makes this one-off provision for them, given immediately that night to satisfy their hunger. Verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. Uh, apparently, these 
little birds migrate north from Africa to southern Europe in the spring. Um, they pass through the Sinai region just about the time that these events are happening. They fly through the day and land in large flocks at night to roost. And partly because they're exhausted and partly because I guess they have bird brains, um, it's, it's not difficult to catch them. And there, there are, in fact, ancient Egyptian paintings and depictions of people just going out and throwing nets over quail uh, to catch them. Uh, this is one of them. You see these guys at the top, they're kind of crisscross at the top part there. They're holding a frame um, with, with a net inside it, and they're just going out, and the, the quail just sit there. You walk out in the middle of them all, and you, you catch them. Um, this, dates from, this dates from about the time of the Exodus, just about exactly that time. British Museum, if you're ever in the British Museum in London, you can, you can see that one. Um, so you find quail occurring naturally in that part of the world, but clearly, given the timing and given the sheer scale of the provision, hundreds of thousands of people being fed, the providence of God is directing these events. Uh, we read in Psalm 78 that God rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. That's the that's, that's the memory of the people, isn't it, coming out in that psalm? Remember what it was like? You know, it's been passed on generation to generation. The whole place covered. We feasted that night. And that one-off provision sees them through till morning and the arrival of a different meal, which will be their daily food and a daily miracle for 40 years. So we read on, still in verse 13. After the quail in the morning dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Glancing forward to verse 31, if you just glance forward there, it tells us something more. Now, verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Wafers made with honey. Uh, what I'm not going to do now is bore you with 17 different naturalistic explanations that have been offered for this phenomenon. You can thank me later. Um, because it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether this manna is the product of some kind of lichen that exudes it and it gets blown across the ground. It doesn't matter whether it's the sweet-tasting excretion of some kind of plant lice, although that does sound delicious, doesn't it? Um, God may or may not have miraculously made use of some naturally occurring phenomenon, but no purely natural thing could explain any of this. No natural phenomenon could explain the timing of the provision, which begins exactly when the Lord says it will, or the pattern of the provision, which takes a day off every week, or the scale of the provision, which feeds hundreds of thousands of people, or the nature of the provision. We'll see next time that if you ever keep it overnight, well, we saw it this time, it, it, it breeds maggots overnight. None of these things do that. Uh, by the way, it breeds maggots overnight, except on the night leading into the Sabbath. It doesn't breed maggots that night. And, and, and none of it could explain the duration of the provision. These are all short-lived seasonal things. They do not continue every day for 40 years. So, so, so people have a problem with miracles in the Bible. It's, it's those who look for a naturalistic explanation of this that are being, frankly, a bit silly. This is a divine miracle. And, and notice that by the nature of it, there are two very obvious lessons 
built into this miracle. This is crucial. The first lesson is that God's provision is sufficient. God's provision is sufficient. What exactly is happening in verses 16 to 18? Um, The text there isn't quite as clear as we might like. The instruction is to gather as much as you can eat. But then it gives a specific unit of measurement, an omer each, about two liters. And then it says different people gathered different amounts, but when they measured it with an omer, and this lovely phrase at verse 18, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. It's a lovely expression. Um, Some people think that a kind of miracle took place so that when you gathered whatever you could, when you brought it back and measured it, it was always an omer. Some people think that it was just a kind of distribution thing, maybe miraculous also, that everybody went out and gathered what they could, and when they brought it back to the tent and measured it, it was always an omer per person in the tent. That was the way it always just worked out. It doesn't really matter. In either case, the point is clear. God's provision is sufficient. It's not luxurious. This is a pilgrim people who need to keep the focus on their destination, but it's sufficient. The second obvious lesson built into the system, if you like, is that God's provision is daily. They're strictly instructed to gather enough for one day only and to keep none for the following day. Verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it. Morning by morning new mercies they saw. The lesson is pretty stark, isn't it? It's, It's pretty obvious, clear. Israel is intended to be in a continual state of conscious dependence on the Lord. They're to look to Him for their needs every day of life. There's a reason why Jesus told us to pray, as we did earlier in this service, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day today's bread. Remember in in Matthew 6, just after teaching that prayer, Jesus speaks about birds of the air which don't sow or reap but are nonetheless fed, and lilies of the field which don't work or spin but nonetheless are clothed more splendidly than Solomon. And then he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Daily dependence on God. Don't don't look to Him today. Give us this day what we need for this day. So those two lessons are there, and they're built in very clearly into the provision of the manna. God's provision is sufficient. God's provision is daily. And we know what's happening here because we got a little glimpse behind the scenes back in verse 4. We were allowed to listen in as God spoke to Moses in verse 4. Remember, he says this, Behold, uh, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Why? That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Exodus 16 is pointing us to the ultimate taste test. Through the provision of manna, God is going to test His people, not to trip them up because He's against them, but to teach them because He loves them. What's the point of a prelim? The point of a prelim is to tell you how you're doing. Sometimes the point of a prelim is to fail you so that you know how you're doing, so that you know that something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. 
It will not be long before God's people stand before Him at Sinai to receive the law. But here they set their prelims. This is a test, not to show God, because He already knows, but to show the people how they're doing in getting to know what it means to love and trust God. How's the training going? Are the Israelites acting like the people of God? Are they trusting Him when He gives them commands? Are they obeying the laws that He sets before them? Or, or to change the imagery, if you want a medical imagery, it, it's, it's a kind of heart exam. It's a divine echocardiogram. You know, they're scanning the heart. They're getting the shape of it. I'm going to reveal what's in there. Do these people have hearts that are inclined towards the Lord? Hearts that love Him. Hearts that long to do His will. Do they see themselves as God's covenant people? Do they want to keep covenant with Him? Is that important to them? How does the test work? Well, notice what God does. He shows them His glory. At verse 7, Moses tells the people, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. That, that's, that's the point. When, when you get out of your tent and you go out and the, and the ground is covered with food, you're seeing the glory of God. But again, they're giving something straight away the previous night too, aren't they? At verse 10, Aaron calls the people to gather before the Lord. And, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud in some visible way. I, I, we don't really know. Maybe the fire in the cloud flared out or, or blazed more brightly. But in some visible way, the people are reminded, we are in the presence of the living God. He is here. The glory of God is His weight. It's hard to define. It is the weightiness of His perfect holiness and magnificence and splendor and power. It's often experienced in terms of awe and fear, astonishment prompting worship. So, in the cloud there, this blazing of His glory, and in the provision of the manna, God shows His glory to the people afresh. And the test is, how will they respond? In terms of the two great lessons of the manna, how will they respond? Will they believe that God's provision will be sufficient and show it by obeying His instructions about how they're to gather the manna? Will they believe that God's provision will continue daily and show it by obeying His instructions not to hoard food overnight? You see, you see in this how closely trust and obedience just, you can't separate them in the Christian life. They're just two sides of the same coin. Those who trust God will obey Him. When, when we're not obeying God, it's because we've not trusted Him. We've not believed His promises. God says, this way of life is good. This way of life is, is blessing. And we say, well, I want that. I, I don't believe you. We rarely kind of, you know, say it out loud, but that's what's happening. If you scan the heart, that's what's happening here. God, I do not believe you that this is better. I believe that this is better, and so I'm going to go this way. Obedient, trust and obedience. There's a reason we hold trust and obey. There's a reason we hold those things together. Those who trust God obey Him. Those who are not obeying God are not trusting Him. And so, so here, verse 20, some of the people 
tried to keep manna for the next day, and you have this lovely picture. It breeds maggots overnight, and it stinks. And Moses is angry with them because they disobeyed, yes, but because the disobedience shows that they didn't trust, they didn't believe God. So what's the point of the story of the manna? Here's how it's often presented. This shows us that God will always meet the needs of his people. I don't think that's right, is it? God sometimes calls his people to suffer and die. We cannot read the story of the manna and conclude that God will always meet the immediate physical needs of his people because throughout the ages, God has sometimes called his people to suffer and to die. Some of God's people have starved to death. That's not the lesson. So what's the point? Well, let's allow Moses to tell us. This is from Deuteronomy 8. Don't bother looking, just listen. Just listen to what, what Moses says in Deuteronomy 8 later on. He says, the Lord your God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, it's not about the bread, it's about the trust. It's not about the bread, it's about the trustworthiness of God. We can't assume God will meet our immediate physical needs because we have no such unconditional promise. But the people of God had been told, God has redeemed you from slavery to lead you into the promised land. He is taking you there. That's what's happening here. God is taking you to the promised land. And they all stood there and said, God has taken us out here to kill us. God, we don't believe you. And that unbelief expresses itself in disobedience. massive great pillar of cloud and fire in front of them. You just have to look up to be reminded that God is with them, that God is leading them. So when God tells them, gather enough for each day, I will provide more tomorrow, their response reveals what's going on in their hearts. This is the taste test. That's the the point of the manna. Will they taste and see not, oh, this is like honey, Will they taste and see that the Lord is good? That the Lord is trustworthy? Will they taste the sweetness of fulfilled promise? Will they show by their trust and their obedience that they've learned that they can live by the words that come from the mouth of the Lord? But actually, that's not really the ultimate taste test, is it? Because for that, we have to go where we went earlier on. We have to go to John 6. Because the manna is just an appetizer. My Father gives you true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Once again, God has shown us His glory. He has shown us in Jesus. The Word of God by which we live has become flesh in Jesus. So, will we trust and will we obey? Will we trust Him that He will give us eternal life? 
And, and I don't just mean he'll give you something after you die. That's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is the life you get the moment you trust in him. Everything has changed. The old is gone. The new has come. You're alive. You can never die. And so, will we believe that He will give us this life, and will we look to Him every day as we are united to Christ by faith, Him indwelling us by His Spirit? Will we look to Him every day and walk with Him every day, trusting Him? We are people in training, and I think it's helpful to remember that. It's helpful to remember It's helpful to remember, and I want you to take this away, it's helpful to remember that trust is a learned behavior. Trust is a learned behavior. You wouldn't think that from the way it's sometimes spoken about. I wish I had your faith, like it's something that just appeared. I wish I had your faith. No, faith is not something that just happens. You You don't start trusting and obeying God just by waiting long enough or by coming to church long enough. That's not how it works. You look to Christ. You eat the bread. And day by day, you draw fresh nourishment from Him. It's a daily lesson, a daily discipline, a daily decision. We edge forward. We learn. How does God train His people here? He shows them their hearts and their need of Him. He shows them His glory in the cloud and the provision. He shows them His total adequacy to their need, His total faithfulness to His promises. And as they see new mercies morning by morning, faith grows. They have to learn to trust and obey, not from a textbook, but in life. They have to learn what it is to be afraid but trusting, to be hungry but trusting, to be desperate but trusting. I think… I think it's one of the more striking texts in the New Testament, one of the more arresting texts in the New Testament. It comes in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. We read there that Jesus learned obedience. Not quite a surprising expression. Jesus learned obedience. And, and that's closely related because of that obedience and trust. You know, again, I just want to emphasize, obedience is just trust with its shoes on. It's just trust in action. Okay. So, so the obedience comes when he, when he trusts completely, believes completely. Jesus learned obedience. What does that mean? It is, what it does not mean is that Jesus was disobedient, and then he learned to become obedient. It obviously doesn't mean that. What it means is that he was obedient, and then he learned to be obedient in every new circumstance that came to him. When it says that he learned obedience through what he suffered, that's, that's what it says. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned in childhood what it meant to obey as a child. And then when he became a teenager, and all the challenges of that phase of life came, he learned what it meant to obey as a teenager, and then he learned what it meant to obey in the workplace. And as the pains and frustrations of life mounted, he learned what it meant to obey in the midst of all of those. And and at the beginning of his public ministry, driven out into the wilderness, starving for 40 days and nights, tempted to turn stones into bread, 
He learned what it meant to obey, knowing that God, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as he, in his ministry, as he turned his face more and more towards Jerusalem, he learned what it meant to obey, even if that meant setting his face to go there, where he knew what would happen. And when it took him to Gethsemane, there in the garden, on his knees, sweat pouring off of him, he learned what it meant to obey, even there. Father, not this, anything but this, any, any other way, but not my will. Even here I will obey. Even here I will trust you. This is how trust works. This is why we end up in the places we end up. Surely, this is, one, this is one of the reasons, isn't it? It's one of the reasons we end up standing at gravesides. One of the reasons we end up sitting in doctor surgeries. All the things that come to us. We're learning to obey. We're learning to trust. God is training us through His Word, through the people He's put here with us, and through the experiences of our lives. You've never visited today before, so you can only, you can only trust God today, today. You couldn't do it yesterday, and you can't do it tomorrow. You've never visited tomorrow yet, and tomorrow there will be new lessons to learn and what it means to trust God tomorrow, but you will learn those lessons off the back of what you have learned about what it means to trust God today. You will edge forward. That's how faith works. It needs to be renewed every day under different circumstances in different trials as we continue to learn trust and learn obedience, and then one day, one day, faith will turn to sight. The point of, of saying that is not to G you up. You know, tomorrow you have the challenge of trusting again as if, as if that's some kind of achievement. No. Tomorrow you have the privilege of knowing again that you're in the hands of a God who has promised all manner of good things and who never breaks His word. And so each morning we wake, your eyes open on the pillow. Today you will be with me. Today, you will provide for me. Today, Christ will be enough. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn what it means that your grace will be sufficient for us and that your power is made perfect in weakness. Help us to learn what it means to trust you. Help us to live our lives in ways that are deliberate. Help us to think, not just to wander along, carried along by the, the tides of the world. Help us to be deliberate about the way we shape our lives and we discipline the patterns of our lives that we might stop, that we might think, that we might pray, that we might listen 
to your word that we might learn day by day to trust you just that bit more. Father, this is, this is your work. It's the work of your spirit. We can't, we can't generate it as such, but help us to look to you with expectancy and help us to, to put ourselves put ourselves in the path of your blessings. You've, you've told us, you've told us how we are to live. You've told us the ways that will enrich our lives, the ways that will draw us closer to you, and what will, what will tear us further away from you. And so, help us to trust you enough to obey these things that we might learn to trust you more, and then more, and then more. We want to grow. We want to become more like Christ. We want to to grow into old age as grumbling people, thankless people. We want to know a profound contentment, a profound joy, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of suffering, because we know that you are our God. We know that you are with us. We know that you are always with us, and you're always enough. Teach us these lessons, we pray, in your mercy. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen.